Now, I want to invite you, if you will, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to 2 Corinthians 9. So the ninth chapter of 2 Corinthians. And if you don't have access to a Bible, we want to put one in your hand. So if you don't have one on a smartphone or something, would you just raise your hand and hold it there? And if you would, one of our ushers will come and put one in your hands. And in that Bible, we'll be on page 628. So don't be afraid of, of the, to use the table of contents in the beginning of the Bible, but we'll be on page 628 in that Bible in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And while you're making your way there, I want to maybe set a, a sense of direction or trajectory for our time together and also recap where we've been. So the last couple of weeks, we've been in the middle, uh, or we, we began a series three weeks ago, we'll, we'll call it DNA or core convictions, the things that we believe the Bible tells us as a church to be, the things that we're invited to, to not waver on, to, to happily disagree about, uh, about, like this, things that will that we'll, we'll fight and die for. And, and these are the things that we're excited about. We, we, these are the things that the Bible calls us to be in, and I would argue even demands us to be as Christians, followers of Jesus, and a church here in our city. There's other things we don't want to fight and die for, right? We don't, we don't, we don't want to fight and die for some of these other things. But, but these are the things, are the, the kinds of things that we would say, this is who we are, and, and we won't waver on these things. Some of these are, are convictional in nature, and, and some of them are not only convictional, but they're aspirational in nature, such that Maybe they're, they're not just things that we believe we ought to be, but they're things that we see ourselves being in the future. And we began where we tend to begin over and over and over again is what we would call the gospel, the good news, the entire story of the Bible that tells us who God is, who we are, and how God has redeemed us, restored us, and forgiven us in Jesus Christ. He's taken our place, and that for us is good news that we now receive by faith. We, we turn from what we previously trust in and find our identity, and we, we call that repentance and believe and trust in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. We trust that this good news is the story by which all other stories start to make sense. It's the story into which all of these other stories fit in. And so we turn away from our own natural tendency to make everything about us and like toddlers to draw attention toward us and, and me and what I want and the things that we have to have. And we turn away from that. We call that repentance. We, we turn away from that sense of natural longing to be the center of the, all focus. And we see that his story, this good news, is the central focus. That's the gospel. And everything we do, everything we sing about, every prayer we pray, everything is built upon this thing. Such that now we believe the second conviction we have is, is our sense of mission. Now that we have heard this good news, we're on a mission. We have good news to tell everyone. It's as simple as this. Like, if you had the cure for cancer and you knew you had it in your pocket, well, what would you do with it? Would you sit back idly and watch people suffer needlessly? The same thing for us is, is the root of our conviction of mission. We, we now have good news that there's a Redeemer, that there is now hope, that in spite of what we see in this world, in spite of the brokenness that we're convinced exists in this world, we now have the remedy. It has been accomplished, it's been finished, and this new kingdom is coming, and we're on a mission telling everyone we can. Right? So our mission isn't to save the world, as we like to say, but our mission is to tell the world that someone's already saved it. And so we engage in different things, we, we engage in different practices, not to help and serve for our own sake, for our own benefit, or our, our own Facebook page, but we believe that we serve and give so that this good news will become the center of attention. That's the second thing. And then 
The third thing we saw from a, from a, a large scale picture is what we saw in Galatians chapter 1 last week is that our tendency is to come up with substitutes for these things. And so our goal is to, with a great deal of simplicity, love the gospel and be on the mission that it calls us to. Such that now we have a sense of focus on these things to where we're able to say no to other things. We're able to say no to good things. Good things, we'll say no, that, that's good, but we don't want that because it's not the good news. And so we have a sense of simplicity and, and a conviction that we have a, a focus upon the gospel and the mission that it puts us on and everything else falls to the side. Everything else fades away. What, what he has said, what he has done and the mission that he's put us on is our goal. Making disciples for the glory of God amongst the nations is our goal. This is what we're doing. Such that now we can say no to everything else. Right? You can say no to the adorable little, uh, right, the, the, the Boy Scout who wants to sell you Sell you popcorn. I know he's adorable. He looks malnourished, right? But you can say no, not because he's bad. Obviously, he's adorable. But you can say, hey, I know I love what you're doing, but first and foremost, I'm going to invest in the mission. This good news going to the nations. And whatever's left, okay, great. Give it to the Boy Scouts. Stock up on popcorn. But first and foremost, we see our mission is the gospel to the nations. Now, this is awesome for us. This gives us a sense of identity. It gives us a sense of freedom, a freedom to to be who God's called us to be and, and not feel the pressure to be what the world wants us to be. And, and I've heard this even amongst churches. One of my good friends is a, a pastor and, and, and he, had, he had good intentions, but I remember, um, I remember saying this, like one of the mottos they had for the life of their church. Um, and, and I get what he meant. He, he says, this is not your grandmother's church, right? As a pastor friend of mine. I love the guy. I love, and I get what he means, right? In the sense that like this is, uh, and I've heard this, this is across the nation. I've heard it. And I'm like, if what you mean is like, like the Galatians, we're not only about the traditions, but instead we're about the content of the Christian message, namely the gospel, and our traditions fall in line with that. Okay, if that's, I get maybe if that's a knock on that, I get what that person's saying, but I guess here's what I would say, like, uh, um, like if your grandma loves the gospel and loves the mission more than anything else, then this is your grandma's church, right? Uh, you're right, if, if your grandma does not love Jesus and the gospel, what he's accomplished for us, and your grandma does not like the mission that we're on, then you're right. We're not your grandma's church. But in the sense that this is who God has called us to be, such that now we're a kingdom of priests. We're a new race. We're a new community, a new family, a new structure, a light, a city on a hill in Sioux Falls because of this gospel. Now, since we've kind of spent the last three weeks looking at the life of the church and these principles the Bible teaches us, from 30,000 feet, we want to begin to look a little more clearly, a little more closely at some of the ways that the gospel, the mission that we're on as a church, in its simplicity, starts to play out for us. And what I want to show you now is that now that the gospel has changed us, we have a radical sense of generosity. Now that God has freely given us the gift of life in Jesus Christ, we can freely give of everything God has entrusted to us. So beginning in verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's read all 15 verses of this chapter together. This letter of Paul to a church, this letter is serving as a substitute. He wants to come visit them, but he's not able to. We'll find that in the first few chapters of this book. But since he's not able to visit them, he sends this letter as a word of correction and encouragement to them. Verse 1, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal 
has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said that you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. I want to walk through this text and then point out some ways in which that I believe that we as a church now are called to be generous. We are to model the New Testament church here. We are to do something and be something because of God's inexpressible gift. The gift that He's given us in Jesus Christ. And I want to phrase it this way. So now that we truly love the Lord Jesus, who became poor for our sakes, making us rich in eternal things, we cannot but dedicate our temporal blessings to His disposal for the cause of glory among the nations. Get that. Now that we truly love and know Jesus, this inexpressible gift, a gift that, so if, if you're not a Christian and you're, you're here this morning, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, a disciple, or a follower of Jesus, and you're here, I'm really glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk together as, 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 as if we're kind of having a family meeting and, and you're getting to overhear it. So some of this may sound strange because I'm speaking to other people who would call themselves believers, but I'm glad you're here because I want you to hold us to this. I want you to hear what it is that we have convictions about. I want you to, to hear maybe from the outside what it is that we believe and begin to hold us to this and begin to understand why we do some things that probably look really strange. 
We believe that God has given us an inexpressible gift of mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. And now that we have this gift, we are full of love. Our affections now overflow. We have gratitude to Him. We know that we don't deserve His grace. We know that we don't deserve His merit. But now that we've received it, we love Him for it. I read that in the opening psalm that we we read. I love God. Why? Because in my in my darkest moment, in, in the place where I was the most lonely, he heard my cry, and he saved me. Now that we love him, we cannot but dedicate our temporal blessings to his disposal for the cause of glory among the nations. And now that we know that he has given to us graciously and generously, we know that we can give graciously and generously. As individuals, as families, as businesses, most importantly for us today, as a church. This is who we will be. Since God is generous, we must be generous. We don't have a choice. So let's walk through this chapter. Let's begin to point out a few things, and I want to give you some some very high-level principles that this chapter points out for the life of the church that I hope that we begin to pray for, we begin to ask God for, and see amongst us. And then I want to bring this as, even to the point where I want to speak very personally about my own experience of this, and I want to give you as, as practical of principle and as a practical example as I can of what this should look like in our lives. So let's begin. I, I want to thank you, first and foremost. I get to teach this book every week. I get to, I get to open it up and begin to expound what's in it. And I'll be the first one to say that it is the most difficult thing I've ever done. It's the most difficult to stand up here every week and, and still have joy in the gospel, right? And still have, still have gratitude to God and then somehow lead you toward that. I, I don't know what happened to you this week, but that is not my nature. I'm a cynical, angry person. And, and my nature is to just complain. And I'm so grateful that you give me this opportunity. And I want to show you even how we do it today sets sets a, a trajectory for us. We're, we're reading someone else's mail. We're reading a letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Now, if you were looking at, at the map of, of the ancient Near East, of, of what, what we would call the Middle East today, we're, we're right where modern-day Greece is right here, okay? So that's where Corinth is. Just west of Athens, there's this massive trade route that goes west of Athens into the rest of Greece, And that's where the city of Corinth is. Now, we know this uh, because we've dug through the book of Acts together. We remember Paul went there, shared the gospel. This is, for us, Corinth is like one of the cities like Vegas, right? It's it's, it's a pretty rough spot. And so so the words that Paul speaks in 1 and 2 Corinthians are kind of like writing a letter to the churches of Las Vegas, right? It's like, they're going to have a few more interesting things going on, like the, what it looks like to be a Christian, this is just my opinion, looks different in downtown Las Vegas on the Strip than it does necessarily maybe in Sioux Falls, right? Just look a little bit different, okay? It's the same thing, make disciples of the nations, but it looks different. And Corinth is like that. It's a city full of idols, a city uh, full, of, full of pagan rituals, and, and Paul writes to them specifically concerning these things. But he's connecting this church in Corinth to the message, the gospel that he's preached elsewhere. Namely, if you caught this, Macedonia, Achaia. So he's referring now, again, to the northern part of modern-day Greece. When he refers to Asia, he's talking about what we call modern-day Turkey. And so there's this kind of spot where the gospel left Jerusalem by persecution, went through Asia, or our modern-day Turkey. It crossed the Aegean Sea into modern-day Greece, so for us, 
We're talking about Corinth. And then it made its way finally to Rome, the center of the empire, the center of the known world, and exploded to the corners of the earth from there. Right? So this, we're, we're kind of in the middle here, and, and Paul's been there before, but he's not able to go visit him, these people, and so he writes a letter instead. He writes a letter about what they ought to do. And the first thing we see here, he says that it's superfluous, it's easy for me to say, superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. What ministry is he talking about? Well, if you want, you can flip back to verse or to chapter 8, and you see this is an encouragement for, for this church to give generously. We want you to know, verse 1 of chapter 8, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So there's this church planting movement where, they're, where the gospel had not been heard. They go and they send the gospel, and they're going as missionaries. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, he's probably talking about all the sorts of bad things that happens when they do this. He got thrown in prison, got beaten. Their abundance of joy, even in spite of their own affliction, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So get this. This church is experiencing, along with the churches of Macedonia, you have to catch this, extreme poverty, yet a wealth of generosity. So they have generosity. They're giving generously even though they're experiencing extreme deprivation. It says, verse 3, for they gave according to their means, proportionally, as I can testify. But also it says, and then beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. What's he talking about? The two different places we see generosity playing out. We saw in Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3, and 4, that the first generosity that that we experience as Christians is with one another. Acts 1 and 2 tells us that this simple, beautiful thing takes place and the church explodes and they're giving to one another. They're selling of their goods. They're selling of what they own. They're letting go of what they own and value for the sake of helping one another. The second thing we see throughout the book of Acts as well is that people are generous toward taking the gospel where it is not yet heard. To send missionaries out and to help churches to be planted around the entirety of Macedonia, Achaia, Asia, Rome, to see churches planted, but also churches that are struggling to be helped by other churches. So there's two types of generosity we see so far. A giving to one another, a generosity to one another, and then a generosity to other churches. And he's speaking here of the kind of generosity that these people are are showing toward Paul and his people to plant churches. They're generous toward the mission. It says in verse 4, did you catch that of chapter 8? They were begging for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Like, please let me be generous. He gets it. They're begging to be generous. Verse 5, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And accordingly, we urge Titus that that as he has started, he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What act of grace is this? It's the act of generosity. It's it's the experience of generosity specifically for these people, even in times of great poverty. They're generous. So in chapter 9, he picks up and says, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry, because you're already doing this, superfluous. I don't know if you use that word a lot. It just means excessive, right? It just means unnecessarily over the top. So it would be over the top for me to write to you only about this ministry, because you clearly know it. Why? 
Verse 2, I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. I boast about you. So one of the first things we see here is that this is happening, and he, he, he instills some, some values here. The first thing I think we see that we can learn from, he brags on people, and so will we. Uh, let's be a people that brag on one another. I've been, I've been the blessed, I've been kind of the, the participant in this and like the recipient of this and I've seen the way this, this blesses people and I hope, I hope, man, I really pray that I get better and better at this and I hope so much so that you find me when I'm, I, I tend to like talk people up, right? And I hope that by the time someone comes and meets you, there's something about that person that makes it like, who told you about me? And I hope that in some sense they're like, well, Jonathan, they told me how awesome you were, right? Where do I get that? Right here. He brags on these people. I know you're ready, and I boast about you to the people of Macedonia. This is exciting. I get to boast about this church all the time. This is already happening. Partners, financial con- you know, contributions, things that come from outside networks and churches and individuals that want to support planning of churches in South Dakota, they always want to know what's going on with Connection Church. And I get to brag. I go, like, this is what happens. We're going to get to baptize some more people on, no, on November the 6th, right? The gospel is changing people. Let me tell you about these people that I first met, and, and they looked like this, and then now they look like this. The, the people that this is what life used to look like, and now the gospels changed them, and this is what it looks like. I get to do this. This is fun. And I hope you catch me doing this regularly. I hope you find me setting the bar high for people around you. This is who we're called to be. I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. He's boasting about what? Their generosity. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. Why do you do that? Because when you boast about people and you brag on people and tell about what God's doing, they somehow get contagiously excited as well. This will be a culture for us. Second thing after that, you see it says that not only do they brag on people, but they expect extremely highly of people. Did you catch that? I boast. I tell them about how awesome you are. Verse 3, I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, just as I said you would be. Now this is interesting because Paul, uh, historically we know that he was not married, but he sounds like a a strange manipulative mother-in-law here, doesn't he? Did you catch that language? I'm sending them there. And they're going to find everything ready just like I told them it would be. Right? It gets worse. He lays it on even thicker. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, well, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Did you catch this? He expects very highly of these people, doesn't he? He has high standards for this church, does he not? So much that he comes along and says, I mean, you, I don't know if maybe mother-in-law is the wrong analogy for me. I have my, my mother and my grandmother is really good at this. Like, you're going to do this, aren't you? Wouldn't it be nice if someone would do this? Wouldn't it be nice if someone would take care of this? Right here, Grandma, right here. Right, but what is he? He expects highly. And this is important because this is part of us, isn't it? We are going to expect highly of people. And we're going to put people in situations where the bar is raised and they may or may not fail. We're going to happily do that. The way we talk about this in terms of multiplying disciples, you hear me say that we want to be a teaching hospital, right? 
you know, a teaching hospital, you go, somebody's working on you, no offense to you in the medical field, but somebody's working on you, and they don't really know what they're doing, but there's somebody around, like, in the corner watching, and they know what they're doing, but they're going to watch that other person, like, you know, stick you with a needle or do something they shouldn't do, and they're just going to, mm, yeah, you'll be all right, you'll live, right? <laughs> this is us. We're going to regularly put people in situations where they will probably fail. Are they the best person for the job? No. But we are going to make disciples that make disciples. And we're going to put people in situations, they'll be under pressure, and for some of you, you feel this. On a regular basis, whether I'm teaching the Bible or whether you're hanging around with people connected to the life of this church, you feel this, don't you? Do you feel that pressure? Do you feel that like, oh, they expect me to love Jesus and look like Jesus right now? Ugh, you feel that? Have you felt hanging around me or others? Why do we do that? Do we feel maybe like a manipulative grandmother or mother? Maybe. Where do we get that? The Apostle Paul. This is going to be a part of who we are. We're going to expect things of you that will feel deeply unnatural. Things like admitting you're wrong. Things like confessing, confessing your sin and your mistakes. Why? Because we think that when you push people toward Christ-likeness in this, beautiful things happen and people glorify God as a result. Now you better do it. I mean, it'd be humiliating for me to put you in a situation to succeed and if you failed. Not to say, you know, the least of how humiliated you're going to be. Right? Did you catch this language? This is who we are. We will gladly run into situations that feel outside of our comfort zone because this is what we believe God is preparing us to be in our city. Here's the third thing. He defines a gift importantly. He says then, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead and to arrange in advance for the gift that you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Now let's define some terms. Let's define what it means to give as a Christian. Let's use some biblical terms that are used. The first one you'll hear Christians use is the word tithe. The word tithe is, is simply a, a reference to a tenth. It's a proportional word. And it's throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament assumes that the work of the priest, the, the reconciliation that happens when the priest makes a sacrifice and atonement for the people's sin, and he steps in and, and mediates to God in the Holy of Holies for the people's sin, is supported by the generosity of the people, and a tenth of what they get, what they harvest, what they earn, is given for that ministry. That's a tenth. It simply just means the word tenth. The second word you'll hear the Bible use is the word offering. That is something that's given as a gift or a contribution, but it's something that's offered as a, as a form of devotion, as a form of religious practice. So you've got tithe, means tenth. Offering just means a religious gift. And then they typically fall under the heading, especially in the New Testament of what we have here, giving or gift. Now let's define that. A gift is not an exaction. That's not a word we use a lot either, okay? Exaction means, to exact payment means to demand or expect something in return. Now, we use that kind of form of the word more often when we say the word transaction, right? There's a quid pro quo. There's a something for something else, right? Even Uncle Sam, Sam understands this, right? If you give something and get something back, that's a transaction. That's not a gift, and in this sense, he's saying you're giving of something and expecting nothing in return. So here's another principle for us to begin to experience. When we give, we give 
not as an exaction, not as a transaction, but as an exercise of generosity. I probably don't need to illustrate the alternative, right? Someone ever owed you something? Someone ever owed you something and you wanted it deeply? Okay? That's not us. We come along and we sing songs like Jesus paid it all. Right? Radical. Crazy, right? So that now, we don't believe anyone owes us anything. In fact, we believe that we deserve punishment, wrath, and hell. And everything else is a gift. We know that what we deserve is far worse than what we get. Such that now, we give in such a way that we don't expect anything in return. Otherwise, as Christians at least, we don't call it a gift. So here's how we define our terms. There's a difference between giving, buying, and throwing away. So we give. Because God has given, we now give. This is, we let go of things that we believe at one point were in our possession, but now we let go of them. That's different from buying. Buying is expecting something in return. And if you're giving of something because you just really want something back, okay, well, that's fine. That's, that's cool. That's called a transaction. Nothing evil or bad about that, right? We live in a capitalistic society. This is a good place to believe in that, okay? But we don't call that giving. You don't go to Walmart and give, right? Like, hey, no, you just, you just, no, I'm, you good too. You do whatever you want with No, we, we go, I expect that. And then we get a receipt for it just in case anything goes wrong. Get the difference? We give. We also don't throw away. Throwing away is, is just when you take something that you don't really need, something that's kind of excessive and not necessary, and you let go of it. I learned this. I, I shared this with you several times. I learned this. I was a, a pastor at an established church and worked in an urban area. It was really awesome. Got a chance to minister to a lot of needs, but it was really weird how it played out. People would like clean out their closets and call it giving, and they're really throwing it away. Because we, we, we used it, we had like a a food drive, kind of a, a, a big pantry that we would get dis- distribute food downtown. But we also had like a clothes pantry. And it was basically where a bunch of people in the church like took all their clothes that they hadn't worn in 30 years, right? A lot of like, a lot of polyester, a lot of strange cuts of fabric, right? And they would go, here, I just, you know, I hope someone can, can I love to give to people who can use it. And I'm like, you're not giving, that's throwing away. No one wears that. No one would. The only use for some of those things, you know, if you have one of those random Christmas or Halloween parties, that's what that's good for. That's what that stuff's good for. You wouldn't go and love a homeless person and go, here, wear this. That's called throwing away. If all you're letting go of are things that you want something to be repaid for, then you're not giving, you're buying. That's a transaction. But if all you're letting go of is something you don't want anyway, that's called throwing away. Get it? Make sure those are... Burned in your mind because we give, we don't buy. We give, we don't throw away. And this is who we want to be. Next, it says that, and I love this because as a preacher, I'm always trying to boil things down. Like, what's the point, right? And I go like, here, right here, listen to me. This is the point. And here, Paul does all of the work for me. Let's look at verse six. Did you catch it? Did you read it? The point is this. It's exciting. This makes my job really easy. What's the point, Paul? Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So there's a proportionality that the fruitfulness of your generosity will come in the same measure that you give. The second thing in light of that is that we decide in our heart. We, 
We believe that that's something we set aside in our own hearts. We, we think about our generosity ahead of time. You ever notice why when you're downtown, you don't have any change to give people who are bumming change? You ever know why? Because you didn't budget for it. And if you didn't budget for it, you think all of a sudden in that moment, you're going to have enough kindness in your heart? You think like, oh my goodness, you're right. I do have too much money in my pocket here. You think you're going to do that? We actually don't think so. And so as a result, we budget for generosity. We plan in advance for generosity. We don't want to manipulate for it. And we don't want to, to like coax people into it. We want people to think about the ways in which they can make a commitment to generosity in their own lives. Such that when the need arises, we're ready. We're ready to give. We prepare in advance, it says here. Because whoever reaps bountifully, will, excuse me, whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And we'll decide in our own heart according to verse 7. Why? Because we're not reluctant or we're under compulsion. Because ultimately, God loves a cheerful giver. Decide in your heart because God will supply. And then here's the most important thing, I think, in the whole thing. Did you catch this? Verse 13, it, it says that after these things are going to happen, not only are you going to meet needs, but there's going to be thanksgiving that's, that takes place. It says, by their approval of this service, they'll do what? What is the ultimate goal for the life of the disciple, for the life of the church? It says right here in verse 13, they will glorify God because of your submission. Your submission. What, well, where does that submission comes from? Come, come, where does that come from? It comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Our submission, our willingness to lay down our own will, lay down our own desires, comes from realizing that God's will for us is better than our own desires. And then, something amazing happens. They glorify God not only because of our submission to Christ, because of the gospel, but catch the last half of that, verse 13, and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Ultimately, people will glorify God by what they see you and I do. And when they see our generosity, they'll glorify God. So here we go. This is, this is kind of the, the sum total of what Paul is encouraging these people to experience and I want to walk through maybe some ways in which, really brief, briefly, how we experience this and what this ought to look like, what we want to pray for in our own lives, in our own church. First thing I want you to see is this. This is a command and an expectation of Christ's church. This is a command. So every week up to this point, we've been talking about this as this is going to be something we we believe in and we don't compromise on in the life of this church. And, and if we have to err on a side, we want to err on the side of generosity. Why? Because it's a command and an expectation. In fact, if I read this right, if we lack in generosity, two things are going to happen. First of all, we will reap very sparingly. And second of all, glory will not go to God. Did you catch that? Our generosity will allow us to reap a beautiful and bountiful, fruitful abundant, amazing gift of God. But secondly, it will glorify God. People will see us. We hear Jesus' words, right? They'll see your good works and then do what? They'll glorify God in heaven. This is what we believe we ought to do. It's expected of us. So here's what, this is, what I, what I'm, this is where I ask you for something, okay? This is expected of us because we believe in Jesus. So for some of you, this is where, I, I'm gonna be careful. This is where I, I wanna, I don't wanna like harm your conscience on this. 
For some of you, this is new, right? Some of you are just, you haven't been a Christian for very long or haven't been a part of the church for very long, and this is new, and this is going to feel weird, right? This is, this is new. But the second reason this is tricky is this, this touches a couple of idols in our culture that we're very sensitive to. This, this touches on something that we don't like to be told what to do, right? Don't tell, me to do, don't tell me what to do with my kids, right? And don't tell me what to do with my money. These, these are idols of our culture. Even though the Bible has very clear expectations for what you will do with both of these things, right? this is a place in our culture where, where our consciences have been hardened, and as a result, when we, when we begin to open our eyes to this, it, it kind of hurts. So if you're new to this, or if this is a sensitive area for you, I love you, I want to bring you into this slowly and carefully, but this is what God expects of you. This is what we do. We give generously, and we take up offerings, and then with that offering, we give it away too. And this is a new concept for many people, but this is what God expects of us. This is what the Bible teaches us, and we're going to, as best we can, live in light of it. There's examples of this. Remember, first couple of chapters of Acts, there's generosity toward one another. But even, even in this very, uh, the, the, the first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, now concerning the collection of the saints. What collections of the saints? The saints take up collections? You're talking about churches? Oh yes, as I directed the churches in Galatia. So wait, you take up collections amongst churches. Ever wonder why we do that? Ever wonder why we pass a basket or have a basket sent back? This is it, 1 Corinthians 16. I want you to continue to do it. It says, just in case we're wondering, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 says, on the first day of every week, remember, now that we believe in the gospel, we don't celebrate, we don't celebrate God's character on the Sabbath Saturday. We're radical. We do it on Sunday. And that's a big deal because religious people don't like to change. But something happened 2,000 years ago, and all of a sudden they got, you know what? Well, let's change something we've done for 4,000 years, and let's start meeting on Sunday. So on the first day of the week, when we celebrate the gospel, we do what? We also put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, or literally as he is able, so that, hear the word proportionality, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So this is something we do. It feels weird to expect people to invest their dollars. But there's a reason we do it, and that's because it's expected of us. So now, for some of you, that just feels good, and you're like, great, yeah, you guys better you guys better do that, right? But then for the rest of us, I need to compel you as to why. And I want to show you why. I want to compel you. If that sounds countercultural, if that like kind of touches on something sensitive, like you don't like to be told what to do with your money, it's yours, then I, I want to show you here. I'm going to ground this idea of generosity in the gospel. And if you want to, you can follow me there, but I'll just read it to you. I want to read to you out of Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus tells us a story. He does something amazing to speak directly to the ways in which the gospel, the forgiveness of sin, relates to dollars. So beginning in verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Settle accounts. Somebody owed him something. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Did you catch that? He had a debt to his master that he could not repay. You hear it? This is the foundation of the gospel. A debt we have to God that we cannot pay on our own. 
So what does he do? Verse 26 says the servant fell on his knees, imploring his master, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him of the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed owed him 100 denarii and seizing him began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with me, have patience with me and I will pay you. But He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay back the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Don't miss this. This is a picture of the gospel. This little parable is about forgiveness, isn't it? And if you're wondering, Jesus closes and says, look, this is about you forgiving others. This is what happens if you don't forgive. Why? Because if you don't recognize God's forgiveness in you, you don't have the ability to forgive others. This will set some of you free. You're having a hard time forgiving others right now because you don't really believe that you're forgiven. And you're unable to forgive those around you because right now when you look at God, you do not believe that you're forgiven. And I want you to hear the gospel. Hear the good news. The debt has been canceled. So that you wouldn't be confused about it, one of Jesus' last words were financial terms. He says, it is finished. It is paid in full. Such that now we can forgive others. Now this story is about forgiveness, but I want you to notice something. Did did you catch how, how he illustrated a story about forgiveness? He used money to do it, didn't he? Interesting, huh? This isn't a story about money. It's a story about the gospel. But it's illustrated by using money. And that's because money has a powerful, amoral capacity to be absolutely honest with you. You can say all you want, anytime you want, to anywhere, any people you want, what you value. But if you look at where your money goes, it will tell the truth. You can say, oh, I value this, I value that, I really value... Look at your bank account. See where your money goes. And that is quite literally what you value. So did you catch this? This story about the gospel, but money illustrates the heart of generosity, doesn't it? And the same thing for us is true. We give because we have been given. And our generosity comes from the gospel. We believe that God created everything, and everything goes for His glory. Everything is for him, to him. Everything draws attention to him. Everything will magnify him. We believe this in our hearts. So now we can hold loosely to what we believe we possess. I have illustrated you this this way. The first thing I want you to see is that God owns everything. He he created it all. He's the sovereign Lord over all things. We just sang about it. But um, 
I like to fix stuff. It's one of my wife's uh, love languages for me to like fix stuff in my house um, or like we build stuff. She likes me more, so I do a lot of it, okay? But as a result, I have to borrow a lot of tools. I don't own a lot. That's an expensive thing to do this. And I have a rule. You need to borrow tools a lot before you, before you buy it because it's just a good idea, okay? So uh, I'm telling you that because so you'll loan me your tools. All right, so, <laughs> so sometimes I'll borrow something. And, and, and recently, I, this, is, this happens all the time. And if I borrowed, if right, right now I have something of yours, come back and ask me for it because I, I don't remember, okay? I borrow a lot of stuff. And there's something that happens typically when you do that. Uh, I, borrowed, I borrowed like a, a fertilizer spreader once, and I had it for like a year. And the person who, who came back, and they owned it. They didn't use it, but I was like, hey, can I borrow this? And they go, sure. And it just, I hung it in my own shed like it was mine, right? And that person came to me like a year later, and it was like, hey, and you could tell they, they were careful how they asked it. Like, hey, could I, could I have my, uh, my fertilizer spreader back? Now, what would I be communicating about myself and about them if I told them no? It's mine. What would I be communicating if I said, no, 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 it's mine now? I would be assuming something about the ownership of that thing that's not true. And my heart would be hardened toward it because I really believed it's mine. And the God of the universe, the Bible tells us, has created all things and is drawing all things together for your joy and His glory forever and ever. He's the one who gave it to you. So that when He comes along and says, put this toward my purposes, it reveals something about that in us, doesn't it? And in a few minutes, a basket's going to pass and you'll feel that tug. And you've got to ask yourself, whatever, whatever you, who, who gave it to you? So you make a lot of money. Cool. Who made you that way? Who designed you that way? Right? You're wicked smart. Whatever. Who, who, whose idea was it to make you that way? You're gifted in some way. Who made you that way? God did such that now when we recognize that he owns all things and entrusts all things to us, when he comes along and goes, hey, I need, I need your time, I need your energy, I need you to do this, we go, well, it was yours anyway. Absolutely. So this is what we believe about generosity. It's rooted in the gospel. God owns it all, and then God gives it to us freely. He gives wisdom freely. James 1 says that if anyone lacks wisdom, ask of God. Why? Because he gives to all generously same word we believe that god does this god gives this if you then according to jesus being evil know how to give good gifts to your children i don't know if you caught that you're evil but you know how to give good things to your children how much will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him he gives it all so we can trust him with it since he owns it we can give it to him let me illustrate for this. This is painful, okay? So if you have any money on you, would you pull it out? Would you, like, reach into your wallet? Got any cash? Can somebody do this? You got some? I got a $20 bill here. Um, I want you to, if you got a dollar a coin, it's literally on every dollar. So if you got 100 good for you. That sounds fun. Um, but if you just got a one, it's on there too. I want you to, to pull it out. I want you to look at it. Now, this isn't a political speech about, like, God and government, okay? This isn't what this is. But I just want to show you a very ironic thing. On every bill, like literally every bit of money, somewhere on it, like on this 20 on the back, it says four words. In God we trust. 
You got it? You're looking at yours? In God we trust. How ironic. How ironic that our government stamped the one thing on the money that we find it most difficult to believe concerning money. What an ironic reminder. What a constant ironic reminder that the place where we're least likely to trust God, (laughs) they stamped it on there. Do you get this? You begin to put this together. Do you see this? You see, it's our temptation. This is mine. I don't want to let go of this. And yet even on this, it says like, even on this, this is where we're supposed to trust God. Even the government is reminding you of this. How'd you get this money? Apparently, we trust that God gave it to us. So here's how I want to end. These are the personal practices for me, and here's what I want to, I want to put all these things together and how this plays out for us. I want this to be a, a personal reflection, and I want to dream about this for our church. So, uh, in my own personal life, this, I'm stepping away from this. This is how I want to apply the text. This is, I'm not speaking authoritatively like from the text, right? This is, I'm, I'm going to tell you how my wife and I, my family, people have mentored me to apply this. So, remember those words we defined tithing, offering, and gifts. Okay, so we, we think those are biblical and, and we want to run to them, okay? So we believe our practice in my home is tithing as a baseline. Like tithing as a minimum. We start with a tenth. It's a first tenth. God's entrusted to us, so we're going to start there. So here's what you'll say. Well, tithing is an Old Testament practice. It's an Old Testament ritual, Old Testament church tradition. You're right. Let's ask Jesus what he thinks about Old, Old Testament traditions. Sermon on the Mount, some people came to him and they were le- you know, learning from his teaching and one of the most famous things he says, he says, you've heard it said, referring to Old Testament law, you've heard it said that you shall not murder. That's a law, right? That's an Old Testament law. And what does Jesus say? I say to you that even if you cry raka or fool or have hate towards someone, you're already guilty, guilty of murder. So what did Jesus do? He took the Old Testament law and he said, this really isn't just about the law, it's about your heart. Because after all, I could beat you half to death. And if the rule is just that I don't kill you, well then we're still good. But the motive to harm you is what's actually devastating. He goes on. They said, you've, said, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. He says, but I say to you, that if you even have lust in your heart for someone that is not your spouse, you've already committed adultery. So what does Jesus do with Old Testament laws? He says, here's the law. Here's how what I'm doing actually imprints the law onto your heart. And what really is at stake is not how you follow the law, but your motives. So let's apply that to generosity. We come along and we say, tithing is an Old Testament practice. Okay, You have heard it said, I mean, this is where you get to fill in the blank, give a tenth to the reconciliation ministry of God here in the earth. But I say to you, what? What do you think what Jesus would say? I think Paul kind of gives us a hint. If you want to sow sparingly, great, you'll reap sparingly. But, this is beautiful, God loves not a cheerful tither, a cheerful giver. So in my family, here's how this plays out. Um, I would say start with not nothing. This is a beautiful thing that if you find yourself saying, like, I I can't afford to give anything. Okay, that's a great, that's really great. You know why? There's some really generous people in this church that you didn't know they're really generous. And they're really gifted 
at aligning things like, like your budget uh, and helping you plan. And there's some people in this room that have, that have battled their way out of debt and they have a great victory story. And so if you find yourself saying, I can't afford to give, that's great. That's a great place to start. Start there. Start giving not nothing. And you'll find that there are people around you that can coach you through that. Come talk to me. I'll tell you how they've helped me and how people have mentored me through this. So just start with not nothing, okay? Let go of not nothing. Let go of, okay, 1%, 2%. Work your way up to that 10th. And then we believe in my family that we're going to have a baseline as a tenth and every single year we're going to pray that God would allow us to give proportionally more. We're going to give, like, even if it's a fraction of a percent, even if I don't get a raise, I'm going I'm to give a little more. I'm going to give just a little bit more. I want to give a little bit more generously. Why? Because God loves that cheerful giving. It's a willing gift, not a compulsion. It's not a transaction. And when that starts to happen, a beautiful thing takes place. So, how does this play out for us? That's, that's my personal practice. Okay, we give. And we give to the local church. We believe that the mission of God is fulfilled in the local church. There are lots of great people doing lots of great things out there, not called the church. But we believe that ultimately, the New Testament is about the, the church. It's impossible to read the New Testament without seeing the church as the central captivating figure. Jesus dies for the church. He charges Christians to expand his church. He says that he will promise to build his church. It is the church that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Every single letter after that is either written to a church or to an individual about a church. And so we give to the local church at least that piece. And if we want to give more, we want to budget for that as well. So if, there's, so if the Boy Scout comes along and wants some stuff for his popcorn, great. We're not going to take away from the local church because that's God's will is not the Boy Scouts. I hate to say that. God's will is the church. And then we want to be generous enough to give to the church and then have leftover to be generous to, say, Billy Boy Scout who comes to my house, right? This is a principle we want to live by. So much so that here's what I'll say to you. If you can't afford to tip, you can't afford to go out to eat. If generosity reveals your own miser nature, your own, your own stinginess, then stay home, cook your own food. Because a Christian cannot afford to sacrifice the glory of God and the bounty of his fruitful and magnificent multiplication by being stingy towards other people. And so we'll avoid play. You want to go out to eat? I can't afford to tip. I'm going to stay home. We can't afford it, can we? This, the glory of God is at stake. So we give generously. And that's what means we have to say no to a lot of things. So here again, back to my own personal life, we have to say no to a lot of things. I really would like a gym membership. I really would like to golf all the time. I would really like to, I have lots of cool hobbies. All of them are expensive, okay? And here's what, at the end of the year, I have to stop and go, I can't do that. Not because it's not good, it's just not what glorifies God. So we want to give to the local church and here's where, for the last three weeks, I want to land on this. If you find yourself saying, I don't want to give generously to this church, that's cool, I got you. That's cool. Then let us help you find the church that you want to belong to and give to that. Your option is not whether to give or not to give. You don't have that option. It's expected of us. In fact, your generosity is a reflection of the gospel. And if you find yourself being stingy, be careful, you probably don't see yourself as forgiven. But now that we do, this inexpressible gift overflows into generosity. And we give. We give freely. The three T's I usually use, time, treasure, and talent. And here's, here, here's where I want you to use your imagination. What would it look like for you to give a tenth of your time? 
to the mission of God here in this city? What would it look like for you to begin to sacrifice a tenth of, of your finances to the mission of this church, to making disciples that will go to glorify God amongst the nations? And what will it look like to, to give of your talent? You've got gifts that I don't have. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I demand of that? That seems, that's none of your business, Jonathan. You stay out of my private life. You stay out of my personal life. You stay away from my money and what I do with it. We give ultimately because God has given. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And we're going to celebrate this truth. Galatians 1.3 says it this way, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who did what? Who gave himself for our sins. Titus 1 says it this way, The grace of God has now appeared, bringing salvation. You hear the gospel? Salvation to all people. Training us now to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because he gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession. 2 Timothy says it this way, chapter 1, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, that is Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony of the gospel given at a proper time. Why do we give? Because he is given. Why do we think about letting go of things in order to be more generous? Because our Jesus let go of the perfection of sitting on the throne in heaven to wear a cross for your sake and mine. Why do we give generously? Because at that moment, when we were doomed and in need of help, God gave bountifully. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and someone demonstrates this gospel to you and says, look, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, they're declaring God's great generosity. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your generosity. We know ultimately uh, we do not have the power to be good on our own. Uh, we know ultimately we do not have it in us, but thankfully it is not up to us. Thankfully you have accomplished this completely and fully for us in Jesus. If there's any in this room, maybe they just feel uh, shackled by, by shame and fear and the thought of letting go of things that they hold dear just, just scares them. Would you begin to give them peace? Would you begin to give them comfort? Uh, your will is good. It's for our joy. You want to grant us our ultimate comfort, not in the things of this world, but ultimately, you want to grant us comfort and joy in Christ. Maybe if we know this, we just hold tightly to things. Would you begin to encourage us with Jesus' words that we ought not to store up treasures here on earth, but we ought to store up treasures in the kingdom of heaven. We don't want to put our faith in things in our own bank account, in our own economy, in our own possession. We want to put faith in things that God has accomplished for us. Allow us now to respond to this goodness. Allow us now to declare it over our lives in your name. Amen.